So our Bible reading this morning comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. And hopefully they'll be above my head as well. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Morning, everyone. Thanks, Liam. My name's Carl. I'm the pastor at Trinity Church Unley. It's great to be with you this morning. Thank you for joining us on this really sunny and lovely day to be together. A few years ago, my family and I lived in Melbourne and we used to go to the museum. It was a favourite destination of ours as a family. We went there mainly so the kids could go and play in the kind of play area that the museum had, but occasionally we'd venture into other parts of the museum to see what was there. One day we were all together as a family and we went into this section of the museum that was about the human body and about life. We walked down a hallway that was just kind of lined with plasterboard walls on each side and then we got to the end and there was a sharp turn to the right and we walked around the corner and there in front of us was a giant screen, maybe four metres by four metres, really large, and it was showing a video of a woman giving birth to a baby. Four metres by four metres, right in front of us, nothing was left to the imagination, it was really graphic. And Jemima turned to Meredith and she said, Mum, what's that? And Meredith said to her, that's how babies are born. And Jemima looked back at Meredith and she said, that's not how I was born, that's gross. (laughs) Now I've been to four births, I'm very fortunate to be able to say that, four births of my children. Very great celebrations to go to, aren't they? And Nicodemus has a question in our passage today. How can a grown person be born again? How can he be born again? This year, 
We're looking at the Gospel of John as a church. We started earlier in the year by looking at the I Am sayings of Jesus. And at the moment, we're just working our way through the first four chapters of John's Gospel. Last week, we looked at the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And I think it's one of the most well-known stories in the Gospels. This week in chapter 3, we come to the story of Nicodemus. And I suspect that this story is not so well-known. Occasionally, Nicodemus does pop up in children's Bibles or in in stories that you might read sometimes. And I think often when it does so, Nicodemus is given a bit of a hard time. He recognizes Jesus, but he seems unwilling to change for Jesus. Perhaps that's the idea that we get from looking at uh, children's Bibles that present Nicodemus. I want to suggest to you this morning that Nicodemus has got a bit of a bad rap and I want us to see actually today that what John is doing in this encounter with Nicodemus is helping us to see that Jesus is much more than just a good teacher. I want you to remember why John is writing this gospel account in the first place. Do you remember John's purposes for writing? He wants his readers to believe, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and that by believing we may have life in his name. And I think in the story of Nicodemus, we see the Trinitarian God giving new life. We see the Spirit enlivening, and we see Jesus giving new life through the cross, and it's all done according to the plan of the Father. Today I've got four things I want to work through with you. I want to just spend a little bit of time firstly looking at who is Nicodemus, the person? What do we know about him? I want to try and grapple with this idea of what is meant by new birth. It's a tricky idea, but what is meant by that? I want us to see in Nicodemus that intellect is not as important as belief. And finally, I want us to kind of work out how this all fits together with Jesus and what does a stake on a pole have to do with the story of Jesus. So let's start by looking at the person of Nicodemus. Who is he? Let me read to you from verse 1 of John chapter 3. If you've got a Bible, please... Follow along with me. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. John wants us to know that Nicodemus is both a member of the Jewish ruling council and that he is a Pharisee. John wants us to know, I think, that this man is a big deal. He's part of the ruling elite. And he's a Pharisee, meaning he's one of that group of Jewish people who hold God's word in high regard and who follow very closely the traditions of the Jewish elders. He's described also in verse 10, if you notice when Liam read it to us before, as a a teacher, a teacher of Israel. And perhaps that word teacher could have been translated as something more like he is the reverend doctor professor for Israel. He's not just your run-of-the-mill teacher, he's distinguished, he is Israel's teacher. In other words, Nicodemus is a bigwig. The modern-day equivalent might be a, a university chancellor or a very distinguished professor, an astute Bible scholar. And he comes to visit Jesus at night. Do you wonder why he visits at night? Maybe he's a bit worried about his reputation, so he comes under the cover of darkness where others can't see him. 
Maybe he didn't want to be interrupted in his conversation with Jesus. So instead of going to see Jesus where all the plebs are talking with him, he goes at night when they're all asleep. Well, maybe it's John, the author's way of showing us that Nicodemus is about to come out of darkness into the light in his conversation with Jesus. All three, I think, are possibilities as to why John records him coming at night. Whatever the reasoning is, he comes at night and he comes not so much with a question but rather with a statement. We see it there in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. I wonder if you know anyone who thinks like Nicodemus, someone who sees Jesus as a, a good teacher or a wise man. Perhaps they go as far as to say that Jesus might have even been sent by God. My experience is that this is a pretty common way in which the people in the world around us view Jesus as an excellent teacher with good things to say, good truths to live your life by, a wise man. But they probably wouldn't go as far as saying that he's God. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have followed the laws and the traditions of the elders. And he would have thought that this kingdom of God idea that Jesus speaks about, he would have thought that he was definitely guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of God. He would have thought that that was just your inheritance as being a Jewish person. And he, as the teacher and a Pharisee, he would have thought he was a shoo-in, guaranteed into the kingdom of God. And Jesus challenges him. He throws him a curveball. This is what he says. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And poor Nicodemus, he seems a bit confused, doesn't he? And you might think at this point that Nicodemus is almost a bit stupid, taking Jesus literally here, asking if a grown person could get back into their mother's womb. I mean, if you think about it, it's a terrible mental image, isn't it? But if Jesus isn't speaking literally, then what is he saying when he says you must be born again? Well, Jesus helpfully, in one sense, goes on to explain what he means in verses 5 to 8. Let me read these verses to you. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Supposed to be an explanation. But as I read these words, and as you read them today, I suspect if you're anything like me, that they're not really all that helpful at explaining what Jesus means. What does flesh and spirit and a blowing wind have to do with the very awkward image of a grown person being born again? And Nicodemus is confused also. He says in verse 9, how can this be? And Jesus responds, saying to Nicodemus, Come on, you were Israel's teacher. You should know about this. I feel for Nicodemus at this point in the story. I don't know if you do. I feel for him because I think there's nothing quite so confronting or demoralizing as being told, you should know the answer to this when you clearly don't. 
So what do these verses mean? Well, commentators have poured over verses 5 to 8, trying to make sense of what Jesus is saying. Some see in them the imagery of baptism with the sprinkling of water or the pouring of water. Some see some imagery about conception and natural childbirth. Many have pointed out that the word for spirit and wind are the same word in the original language. All the commentators seem to agree that these verses are difficult to understand, especially for us as modern readers. Verses 5 to 8 are confusing for us and confusing for Nicodemus. So what are we to do with them? Well, I think the key to how we unlock these verses and to understand what verses 5 to 8 are about is in recognising that Jesus at least thinks Nicodemus should have known what they were about. And that suggests then that Jesus is referring here to something from the Old Testament. Something about water and spirit and renewal coming with God's Messiah. I think what Jesus has in mind is Ezekiel chapter 36. In that passage we see water, spirit and renewal or rebirth all on view in the same passage. So if you have your Bibles, come with me to Ezekiel 36 and I want to look with you at verse 24. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. This is what it says. Ezekiel is written to the nation of Israel while they are in exile. And it says this, For I will take you, that is Israel, out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So here in Ezekiel we see the imagery of water and spirit being used together. And we see the idea of renewal or rebirth here in the giving of a new heart. So how does this make sense then of Jesus' words? Well, to be born again then through the lens of Ezekiel is to be remade, specifically remade with a new heart. And so at least in part then, new birth is a, is a transformation whereby we're given new hearts, hearts of flesh in place of hearts of stone. And that happens through God's Spirit at work in us, taking us from death to life, from spiritual death to spiritual life. And then with hearts of flesh, we're perceptive to God and we hunger for Him and we understand how to follow God and to obey His will. And Jesus says, without hearts of flesh, we'll never enter the kingdom of God. For John's original readers, those who would have, I expect, had a a good deal of exposure to the Jewish way of thinking and the Jewish Old Testament, the implication then is clear. It doesn't matter who you are or or how important you are or, or how religious you are. To enter the kingdom of God, to get eternal life, you you must be born again. You must have a heart of flesh. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, he was the religious teacher, he was the elite in 
Israel. He would have thought that his entry into the kingdom of God was guaranteed because of his status. And yet Jesus says to him, you must be born again. It holds for us today as well, doesn't it? It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you know. Going to church won't get you into the kingdom of God. Knowing your Bible word for word or verse for verse won't get you in. Being part of a family that serves every week at church or helps in the community or gives money to charity, those things won't get you into the kingdom of God. What is needed, Jesus tells us, is a heart that is receptive to God, a new and transformed heart, a heart of flesh. A heart that's responsive to the call of God, that knows the will of God. And that's the work of God, the Spirit at work in our lives. Jesus tells us, and it's in many ways not all that dissimilar to how Paul puts it in Romans, that this is God's work, the Spirit moves where it chooses. In a couple of weeks' time, Jeff Lynn's coming to teach us on the doctrine of election. He'll spend three weeks working through that with us as a church. If you thought the doctrine of election... If you know anything about it, if you thought it was perhaps just a a very Pauline, Apostle Paul's way of thinking, well, here we see something similar in Jesus' words. Nicodemus, he obviously knew a lot. He was a leader of the people. He was the Reverend Doctor Professor. He was Israel's teacher. And yet to enter into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus needed to believe. He needed a new heart, a heart that was responsive to, to God. He needed to be made new. I hope you're with me so far. I recognize verses 5 to 8 are pretty tricky verses for us to understand and work our way through. The next little section is hopefully a little easier. See, up until this point, Jesus hasn't really answered Nicodemus' question of how. How can someone be born again? But I think he gives us the answer to that in verses 14 to 15. Let me read those verses to you. This is what it says. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. I wonder how you feel about snakes. Some people seem to be fond of snakes. I'm not one of those people. I mentioned I lived in Melbourne a while ago. There was a man a few houses down from us, kind of the next block over actually, who one day took his snake out for a walk in the park. And what that meant is he um, uh, put his snake out on the little park in front of our house, let it slither through the grass sort of the other end of the park, then he'd walk over, pick it up, take it back to the start, and off it would go again, and he'd do it over and over again. I took a pretty wide berth around that park <laughs> from then onwards. You see, for most of us, snakes and fear go, go hand in hand. Snakes and fear are, are part of Israel's history as well. I guess it goes all the way back to the garden. But what's on view in this passage is not the garden, but when Moses was leading the people through the wilderness. Back then in the hot desert sun and in the trials of walking and waiting, the Israelites complained to God, why have you brought us out of Egypt, they said. And that complaint was a big mistake. And to discipline and to punish the people, God sent snakes, venomous snakes. He sent them amongst the people and they bit the people and people died. 
It's easy to see why the people then repented and, and turned to Moses, pleading, please do something about this. It's a funny story. It comes up in Numbers 21. Let me read a little bit of the story to you, because you may not know it. This is what it says. So after they're complaining, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The snakes were biting the people and they were dying of the venom, killing them. The solution, if you've been bitten, if you kind of feel death approaching, the poison doing its work, then you're to look to the snake on the pole and, and have life. I reckon this is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. God sent the snakes, why didn't he just take them away? Why this strange bronze snake set up on a pole well perhaps just perhaps it's for this very reason in john chapter 3 that jesus might recall here the story in john's gospel perhaps the snake was always pointing to another way in which life would be given the bronze snake it was just a lump of metal fashioned into the shape of a snake and put up on the end of the pole this bronze snake had no power it was just metal but god in his mercy and in his grace chose to save those who trusted in him by looking to the snake so what does this all have to do with jesus well jesus tells us that just as moses lifted up the snake so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in Him and looks to Him may have life. For Nicodemus, it must have all been pretty confusing. But for John's readers and for us today, the meaning behind Jesus' words here, knowing what would happen to Jesus, ring clearly, don't they? See, Jesus himself would be lifted up on a pole. He would be hung on a cross. And there he would die for the sin, not only of Israel, but for the entire world. And Jesus says to those who believe, those who look to him will have life. So just as the Israelites, after they were bitten by a snake and they saw death approaching, so they looked up to the snake. So too, those of us, who realize we are otherwise spiritually dead, are to look to Jesus and his work on the cross. Let me just try and draw then some of the threads together in this story for us. Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus, thinking of Jesus as a, a great and a wise teacher. He'd seen the signs. He knew that Jesus must have been sent by God. But Jesus shows Nicodemus that he is much more than just a wise teacher. He's the son of man. The chosen one. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who will be lifted up. 
that all who believe might have life in his name. He came that all might have new life, eternal life. Life that comes from being born again. New birth that is wrought through by the Holy Spirit. The process where we move from spiritual death into spiritual life, where our hearts of stone are changed into hearts of flesh. How? How can Nicodemus be born again? How can we be born again? How can we experience this life? Oh, we are to look to the cross. See, as the Israelites looked to the snake on the pole, so Nicodemus, so we must look to the Son of Man lifted up. I'll share with you each week a quote from Don Carson. I've got one on the screen now. Jermaine will put it up for you. Here's what Don Carson says. Nicodemus was being challenged to turn to Jesus for new birth in much the same way as the Israelites were commanded to turn to the bronze snake for new life. How can this happen? That's Nicodemus' question in verse 9. The kingdom of God is seen or entered, new birth is experienced, and eternal life begins through the saving crosswork of Christ received by faith. For us today, I I hope all of us are able to see Jesus as a wise teacher. After all, he was God with us. His teachings and his sermons and his parables are genuinely God-given words to us, full of helpful, life-giving advice. But I hope in this story you see Jesus as much more than just a wise teacher. Through him being lifted up on the cross, we can have new birth, new life an eternal life. And that means that in our walk with Jesus as his disciples, his teaching takes on new meaning for us. So, for example, when Jesus says things like, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, they're not just the wise words of a of an astutely financial counsellor, an astute financial counsellor. That's the voice of our creator God speaking to us. We listen not just because it's good advice, but because he is our maker. When Jesus says, don't worry about your life or what you eat or drink, it's not just the advice of another lifestyle guru, but the words of a man who knows all things. When he says, don't look at another person lustfully, he's not just providing wise advice for those of us looking to maintain a healthy relationship. He's speaking as a God who knows us and knows what's best for us. And so we follow his words, not just because he's wise, but because he's our king and our God. We turn the other cheek, not because it might seem like the wise thing to do, but because we have hearts that are receptive to God. Our obedience to God is not just because we, we want to get something good out of life, but because we have hearts of flesh that are responsive to our God. Back in chapter 3 of John, you may wonder how Nicodemus responds. And John kind of leaves us hanging at the end of chapter 3, or the mid part sorry, of chapter 3. I think part of what he's doing is he wants us to think, how would you respond if you were Nicodemus in this situation? And my guess is that Nicodemus would have gone away from this conversation with a headache. He is, after all, the Reverend Doctor Professor of Israel 
And yet this conversation must have been confusing for him because Jesus had not yet at that point been lifted up on a pole. And so Nicodemus couldn't have looked to that event even if he'd wanted to. And Pentecost had not yet come, so the Spirit hadn't been poured out on all people. And yet despite that, I think that at least at some way, God's Spirit was at work in Nicodemus because he's inquisitive and he's interested in who Jesus is. You might wonder, what comes of Nicodemus? Well, fortunately, John doesn't drop Nicodemus altogether. He pops up again in chapter 7. In chapter 7, the ruling council, remember Nicodemus is part of that ruling council, they're debating what to do with Jesus and Nicodemus stands up for Jesus, not in a really significant way. He's not putting his neck on the chopping block, but we see in chapter 7 a softening of his heart. But then come with me to chapter 19 of John's Gospel, if you've got your Bibles there. Chapter 19, verse 38. Jesus has now died. He has now been lifted up on the pole. And in verse 38, we read this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. See, John's showing us that the work of being a disciple of Jesus is, at this point, very risky. With Pilate's submission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by... Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. It's the same Nicodemus, but now he's emerging from the darkness into the light. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. See, Nicodemus has come into the light. He's now seen Jesus lifted up and he's responding now with belief. Here are two wealthy men using their wealth and influence to bury their saviour and their king. For me, this is such a powerful picture of faith and trust and belief. Their king has died, and at this point, he hasn't risen yet. This is new hearts at work, responsive to the king of the kingdom. Today, we have the full, the full picture at our disposal. The gospel stories are complete. Jesus has been lifted up, and we can see that by reading it in the story. He's been lifted up both on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he's also been lifted up in exaltation and glory. He's risen, and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And today we can read in Acts that the Spirit has been poured out. We today have the full picture. And so here's the question for us. How do we see Jesus? He's a great teacher, sure. But he's so much more than that. He's the one to whom we can look for eternal life. He's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. Is he your king? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the way that you are at work amongst us as your people. We thank you that your spirit is at work in us, softening our hearts. We thank you for the saving work of Jesus on the cross. 
We thank you for being with us in flesh in the person of Jesus, for his teaching and for his guidance on how we're to live for and with you. We thank you that you've given us a way to avoid spiritual death by looking to Jesus on the cross. Father, we look forward to his return. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.